Well, uh, for those who don't know me, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Drew Stedman, and um, I have this awesome job of getting to work with the Antioch Movement, which is the church network that Antioch Austin is a part of. And one of the very best parts of my job is I have the privilege of serving as an external advisor for this church, which means I get to come hang out with you guys and uh, truly love it every time I get the chance to do it. Um, if my family's with me today. I came last week, but they didn't get to come. So my wife, Bethany, daughters, Grace and Abby Joy on the front row. And um, other daughter, Audrey, and son, Joshua, are in the kids' ministry. Uh, we came down last night, got to have a fun evening in Austin and, and worship with you this morning. Uh, we really do love Antioch Austin. I remember it was right after the church was started. I can't, you know, five-something years ago. Um, for those who were there, we were meeting across the highway in junior high school on the other side of I-35. And it was the first time that, that we came on a Sunday together as a family. I made the drive down from Waco. And I still remember we were driving back home. And my kids had all been in the kids' ministry, and they were explaining what a great time they had. And they're like, Dad, can we start coming to this church? We really love the kids' ministry here. So you're not allowed to tell anybody at Antioch Waco, but the Stebney family loves Antioch Austin. Well, um, Pastor J.D. Griffin, who's the lead pastor, is continuing his sabbatical. Should be back, I think, in five or six weeks. I don't remember the exact day, but I know we're all looking forward to having him back. In the meantime, you're stuck with me. Um, I was here last week, um, this week, and I'll be preaching next week. As we continue our series... Um, it's a study through the book of Acts, and I've loved, I, I don't know about you, but every time I read Acts, I just always leave so challenged, convicted, encouraged, stirred, just seeing the example of the church, of who we are called to be. Um, so last week, for those who are with us, we looked at Acts chapter 15, verse 1 through 11, and I framed it as one of the most significant events in the history of the church, because it was at this time that the church grappled with this massive question of identity, and really what they were asking is, who is a Christian? And central to this question was, does a Gentile, which is a word to describe somebody who's not Jewish, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to be saved? Like, do they have to start doing all the customs in order to have salvation? And this was a huge question of identity, and you can go look at that recording to see why that was such a big deal to them. And where we landed, we saw in this passage that in the end, what we, did, what we discovered is that in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and his grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that now we, no matter who we are, no matter our ethnicity, we are all invited to join in together as the people of God, whoever confesses Jesus as Lord and commits to put him first in all things. Amen. And so now the church is no longer based on ethnicity or any other external factor, but the church is based on those who are redeemed. And that's our identity as the people of God. Amen? Amen. That's why we're here today. Most of us in this room... That was the decision that allowed us to be engrafted in as God's holy people. It's incredible. And we studied what that meant, but what we also looked at, and this is what really was convicting and challenging, at least to me, is we looked at how the church grappled with such a significant question of identity. I mean, this is everything. And how on earth did they remain united in the midst of such an important question? And we saw the answer is that there were people who were completely submitted to the lordship of Jesus in all things, where they were willing to let him guide the church into unity and not allow their own agendas or desires to get in the way. And I just left so convicted by the ramification, even as God has spoken over us and over his church, this is an hour of unity. I thought that is a key for us to walk in that unity. Well, this morning, we're going to jump to the end of Acts chapter 15, and we're going to look at a very different story. And so, you know, the rest of the chapter, I didn't have time to get into all of it, would encourage you to read it as you kind of see the church finalize that decision about identity. But then we get to Acts chapter, chapter 15, verse 36 through 41. That's what we're going to be reading here in a moment. 
And in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, we're going to discover that despite this incredible example of unity, the early church still dealt with relational conflict. It's actually a pretty sad story that we're going to read this morning. And we're talking about how two heroes of the faith, Paul and Barnabas, couldn't get along in the end. It's sad. But if you're like me, it's also a little bit encouraging. Because if, you know, if they can't figure it out, at least like when I can't figure it out, I feel a little better about myself, right? Like it's nice to know that these heroes of the faith are still human. You ever have a friend who's just always on time, you know, and then that one time they're late and you're like, all right. <laughs> And if you've never had that, then you're the guy that's always on time. So um, it, it's, I, I think in a weird kind of way, it can be an encouragement to us that despite the example of the Church of Acts, they still dealt with the same type of relational conflict that we do. And maybe we can study a little bit and learn how do we, how do we walk in that. Now, I think this passage is going to be especially relevant in this hour because I don't know that it takes a rocket scientist to recognize that we are in what I believe to be a relational crisis in our society. Like everywhere you look, you can look at the breakdown of families at every level, and we see that there. We see that in, in our relationships and our friendships with people. I'm sure each person in this room, we have probably more than one example of where this is playing out in our life right now. We see it in churches, in every type of church. I cannot tell you how many pastors I've talked to, especially the last you know, three to five years, where relational conflict has been such an incredible theme for them to have to re re wrestle with and walk with. How do we live out in a world of relational conflict? And I think it gets even bigger than that. I think it happens at a societal level outside the church. And, you know, just as one example, I don't know if any of you have Googled or looked up loneliness rates in the United States right now, but it's very sobering. The number of people who report that they are lonely, the chart kind of looks like it's just a graph that's taken off to the right. I mean, it, it's a sobering thing to look at. Loneliness that goes on in our society. Uh, you know, right now, I would even go so far as to say we're in a pandemic of loneliness culturally. And I have to believe that conflict is a core reason why that is happening in the world around us. Once again, I believe that we are in a relational crisis. And for a body of Christ, for churches that are called to walk in unity, somehow we have to learn how to handle conflict and relationship if we're going to walk in the unity that God has for us. So what causes it? You know, and I don't know. I don't know all the factors that go into that. But I can take a stab at a few of them. I had this very strange and funny experience a few years ago. Um, where in my role at Antioch, sometimes we have these you know, visitors come by, pastors, people from other cities. They just want to meet and chat, get to know us. And so this one time, this guy ended up in my office, and we were hosting him. And he lives and ministers in another country. It was like visiting some family member that moved to America or something. And he's ending up in my office and just kind of sharing about his ministry. And have you ever had a talk with somebody where it's like an hour-long conversation and they talk for 58 of the minutes of that hour. Like, it was one of those conversations. Like, he's just telling me everything, you know, about his ministry. And it was great. Like, totally fine. You know, it was great to get to know how God was moving through this ministry and really fun, engaging guy. So we're talking about ministry. We're talking about life. The conversation ends. I'm, like, literally walking him to his car. And then he turns out of the blue. We had not talked about marriage once. Out of the blue, he turns and looks at me and he goes, you know, Drew, America, you guys do so many things well. And he rattled off a few things. But he, then he said... But in my country, we do marriage better than you. Tell me more, you know. <laughs> it's a bold statement. You better back it up, buddy. And now here's the thing. I didn't have time to respond because he, he was a talker. But in the, in the second of thinking before my response, I'm like, I know your country. And this is a country where it's customary and pretty typical for families to arrange marriages. So you don't pick your spouse. Your spouse is chosen for you. 
And I know a lot of those families, and I know a lot of the dysfunction in a lot of those families. So I'm like, you got a pretty high bar to convince me that you're right on this one. Then I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, in America, you fall in love, and then you try to learn how to commit. In my country, we commit, and then we learn how to love. I was like, dang, you win. You know, like, I don't have a comeback to that. Like, that, I'm not advocating for arranged marriages one way or the other, but I'm like, man, that... I think he maybe has some insight that I had missed about my own culture. You ever need somebody who kind of sees the world differently than you to reflect back to you something about yourself that you missed? And I thought about that. You know, I'm going way broader than marriage here. I thought about how often we love something. And obviously marriage, we're talking about uh, a different kind of love. But, you know, I, I, I love this new group of friends I have. I love this new church I'm going to. I love this, you know, fill in the blank. We love something but I don't know that we've resolved what it means to commit to something, right? So what happens? Eventually, whatever it is, whatever cool thing you've discovered, whatever new person you really like, all the way into our marriages and our family relationships, whatever it is, at some point, you're going to run into this thing called conflict, where the excitement and the joy and all the positive things about that relationship suddenly are going to become stressful, painful, and hard. And the question is, what do you do at that moment? What do you do when that commitment becomes something that's challenged? And I think for many of us, what we do in that moment is we bail on the relationship. We go a different direction. The pain of the relationship, the, the intensity of conflict and stress, it's just easier to disengage. And I think there's something even in our cultural understanding, there's something that feels safer about just withdrawing back into the self rather than pressing through conflict and getting to the other side of it. And in the end, if that's our strategy for dealing with conflict is to walk away, in the long run, we end up alone. Every relationship is going to have conflict. You know that. If it's a close relationship, you're going to have conflict at some point. And we have to make the choice. Either we've made the commitment that we're going to do our best to work through it. Now, I'm not saying that you can get through every conflict, and we're going to see that this morning in our text. I'm not saying that we're going to get through every conflict, but I am saying I think we need a commitment to do our best to try, to not just bail when things get tough, but to make a commitment we're going to do our best to work through to the other side. And I believe that's a fundamental key to have lasting, long, and healthy relationships. Because if you work through a conflict with somebody, you know on the other side of the conflict, that's where you actually have depth and intimacy in that relationship. Once you've worked through it, there's a security that comes of knowing we can get to the other side of this that brings health to our relationships and really to have lasting death. And I think that's something that we're missing on a cultural level. Now, anytime you preach on relationships, you have to throw up a ton of balancing thoughts and disclaimers. And so I recognize that when I talk about relationships, there is a gamut of what I'm going to call just a normal, typical relationship where there's conflict on both sides. But there are some situations that are extreme. There's manipulative or even abusive behavior, and that's going to take different pastoral advice than you know, a lot of what I'm sharing today. So please, if you're in that situation, really something that we'd love to help you with as a pastoral team. Uh, but it's impossible to preach and cover every relational situation. In fact, whatever conflict, I bet every person in this room is in a conflict right now, and you probably all need a little bit of advice that's different on how to handle it. Everything ranging from the extreme to just normal life stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, this morning I'm covering a lot of general principles, but obviously the application is going to be a little different person to person. So I'll try to give a few more balancing thoughts, but really what I'm going after today are just some basic normal behaviors that we can approach in the majority of our relationships to allow us to have lasting depth. Sound good? Yes. All right, let's read our, our main passage this morning. 
Acts 15, starting off in verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. All right, so what's going on here? You guys, we've, we've read about Paul and Barnabas. We have some understanding for whom they are, but we don't really know about this guy named John Mark. And in scripture, he has two names. Sometimes he's referred to as John Mark. Sometimes he's referred to as Mark. Sometimes you'll occasionally see it as John. We don't know a lot about him. And so I want to take you into a little bit of who he is that might help us understand this conflict a little more. Um, the first time we read about him is in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And they're going to put it on the screen behind me. Um, you can just leave it up. But the, the context for this story is this is the story, we, I think we preached on it a few weeks ago, where Peter had been arrested. He's in jail. He's going to be executed most likely the next day. Then suddenly in the middle of the night, God sets him free. He makes all the jail guards fall asleep. Peter walks out of the jail. He walks down the street. He eventually gathers, goes to the church where the believers had been playing, praying all night for his release. And he knocks on the door. They let him in and they all rejoice. But there's this little detail in this story that you might have missed. Whose house were they at when they were praying for Peter's release? It was at the mother of John Mark. And if you kind of do the timeline here, you know, this is maybe five, 10 years prior to the story we're reading today. So it seems to me that John Mark was probably one of the first generation of people that grew up as children in this new church. His mother was a major leader in the church. And so he's a church boy, one of the very first ones. His mom's a leader in the church. The church meets at his house. He's very familiar with the people of God. But then elsewhere in scripture, another one of those passages you've probably overlooked, we discover that he had other family in the church. So Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, there's this little detail, it's on the screen behind me. Not only was his mother in the church, but look who his cousin was, Barnabas. So he's not just some random guy. I mean, he is the cousin of Barnabas. His mom's a leader in the church. Like he's very well connected in this early church. And that explains why he joined Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. So if you're at church two weeks ago, Chris Padgett preached. He talked through the missionary journeys in Acts 13 and 14. The first place they went was Cyprus. The reason they went to Cyprus is that's where Barnabas is from. So, you know, once again, all these family connections. And they go to Cyprus. They have an awesome experience. Then they go um, inland to what's now modern-day Turkey. That's their next stop. And somewhere there, this is when John Mark leaves them. Acts 13, 13 um, gives us the story. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. It just says this, that John, however, left and returned to Jerusalem. So if that's all we had, you'd never think twice about it. Just this basic little footnote in scripture. But there was something about him leaving that rubbed Paul the wrong way. And so Paul's sitting here thinking like, hey, he had his chance. And this is the source of the conflict. I don't feel good about him joining us again. So in the passage that we read just now, Paul recounts what happens. He's explaining to Barnabas why he doesn't want him to go. And he's saying, like, he deserted us. But whatever, whatever translation you have in English probably doesn't capture, there's a play on words happening here with the original Greek language, because the word that Paul is using is the same word for apostate. And if you're not familiar with that word, it was a word used by the early church to describe a Christian who turned their back on God and left the church in times of persecution. So Paul's not just saying like he got sick on the mission trip, didn't like the food, and he went home. 
Like, he deserted us. And you got to remember, this is a day and age when to be a Christian was a dangerous thing. So somebody leaving the church was a significant security risk for those who stayed behind. So, you know, I, I get it. Like, Paul's like, I can't trust this guy. He deserted us. When, the, when things got tough, he left. We can't have him risk jeopardizing this mission. Like, that's at the core of what he's saying. And this is the cause of the conflict. Barnabas still wanted him to go. Now, I don't know, have you ever had an experience where you had some friends that were in, in conflict with each other, and you talk to one friend, you hear their side of it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. But then you talk to the other friend, you're like, oh, I get it. And you're like, man, both of you have good points. I tried to do that this week, looking at this story. And, and I imagined myself, and join me for a second, I imagined myself in Paul's shoes. Because you're thinking, all right, I'm trying to go on this missionary journey to strengthen the church, and I have this guy joining us who is a liability. He's already proven that he can't be trusted. His lack of trustworthiness might jeopardize the mission. Meanwhile, I've got Silas who wants to join me. He's a proven leader who's going to strengthen the churches. Later on, we discover that another guy named Timothy, who ended up being one of the most important leaders in scripture in the early church, there's space for him. So by not taking John Mark, I actually have space for other people who we can actually trust. On top of that, it seems like in the passage, there's this little detail you might have missed at the end, but when Barnabas left, nothing happened. But when Paul left, the church commended him in the grace of God. It sure seems like the church agreed with Paul and not Barnabas in this decision. So Paul's also probably saying, not only am I doing this, but the rest of the church agrees with me in doing this. Oh yeah, and by the way, one more detail. Barnabas, he's your cousin. You are being a homer for your family members. It's blinding you from seeing. This is nepotism. I can't trust your discernment because it's your family. All right, so you're like, okay, Paul, good, good, good point. But then what's Barnabas' side? Let's go over here. Now I'm Barnabas, right? What's his perspective? He's looking at this story and he's thinking, yeah, I get it. But don't you recognize that what I do is I take risks on people that other people don't believe in, and the grace of God on my life is to call them up. Because look at the history of Barnabas' ministry. That's what he does. And I'm sure Barnabas is thinking something like this. Like, I get if other people think that this is a bad idea. I get if the rest of the church in Antioch thinks this is a bad idea. But Paul, you do not have the right to tell me this is a bad idea. Because you know who else I did this with? You! And the whole reason why you are a leader in the church is I took a risk on you and took you along with me when everybody else thought it was a bad idea. So maybe you shouldn't be complaining about me wanting to take John Mark. Okay, you get it, right? Conflict. And it seems like a normal conflict to me. It's like, man, you guys both have a good perspective here. So what do you do with it? How do we handle conflict like this? And in our story today, we're not talking about a situation where one person is evil and another person is good. This is just a little pro tip for life. Most conflicts don't fit that paradigm. You may think the other person is evil in the moment, but most of the time, as I've been a part of mediating countless hard conversations, most of the time, if we'll take time to listen, another pro tip, we discover that, you know, there's legit reasons why there's also flesh and even sin involved in the equation but typically at the core, there's probably something good, some good perspective, some good reason why somebody is thinking this way, and it's tough. How do we handle conflict, and especially conflict between good people where it makes a lot of sense? In the end, our passage ends where it says that they had a sharp dispute and they separated. You know, that word separated, it really refers to like a rupture, a rip. You know, it was a tear. It was a relational tear that came out of a painful argument. And what's tricky in our passage this morning is that I, I wish there were like three more verses at the end of this. 
And the three more verses were after the tear, they all went, they went to their separate rooms, they had a quiet moment, they all took a breath, they called some friends in together, they had a great mediation time, they all talked, they shared hearts, they learned how to empathize with each other, looking each other in the eye, they came to a great understanding and they gave a giant big hug and then they walked out of there in unity. Those verses don't exist in this passage. Like, I really wish they did. It would make my job preaching a lot easier this morning. But they aren't there. And so I'm looking at this. I'm thinking Acts is like the paradigm example for who we are called to be. And in the paradigm example of who we're called to be is an example of conflict that happens when people can't get along. You know what that tells me? I don't think we're going to get out of this by avoiding conflict. I think if we approach church thinking that these are all these godly people... Therefore, we will always get along. Then what's probably going to happen to us is when we run into conflict, it's going to freak us out. We're not going to know what to do with it, and we're going to fall into that cultural habit of withdrawal. But I think what Acts can challenge us is saying, I'm not saying conflict is right. I think it's, a, it's an effect of sin and the curse of sin. I think in eternity, I know in eternity, this isn't going to be a part of the story. But on this side of eternity, conflict is going to be a part of the story, and we're going to learn how to have to deal with it. And that's right here in the example of the Church of Acts. So on the one hand, if you're in conflict, it's encouraging, so you know, okay, I'm not going crazy. But on the other hand, it's sobering because we're going to have to figure out how to work through conflict so that we can stay united as the people of God. For me, I think maybe the first significant time I encountered this, I was a teenager. I grew up in this really amazing church. Uh, my dad was on the pastoral staff. It was actually a church that had a, it was pretty prominent nationally. God was using this church in dynamic ways. And I went to school at the church. My friends were at the church. I was there probably six out of seven days in the week. So this was a significant part of my life. And I want to just say, I am so grateful for the heritage I have from the ministry of this church. I mean, still to this day, despite the story I'm going to tell you, such a powerful thing for me. However, that doesn't change the fact that there's conflict. And when I was a teenager, the, the founding pastor, really incredible man of God, felt the Lord lead him to go start another ministry in town. So he transitioned out of leading the church. The church called a new pastor, and the new guy came in. And this new pastor actually was very influential for me as well. I remember it was, he was the one who really taught me about the mission of God and God's heart for the nations. And, and God used this man in pretty profound ways in my life. So very positive, very awesome. But at that same time, I, I was a little naive and, and clueless, but at that same time, conflict was starting to erupt in the church. And I started to notice many of my friends, their families were leaving the church and I could pick up, you know, I was clueless, but smart enough to pick up on some stuff. I could pick up on the fact that they weren't happy about things. And this is right before I went off to college, but it was so sad because every, every time I showed up to church, there were fewer and fewer people there. People I was used to seeing weren't there anymore. Painful. Now, meanwhile, I go off to college, I get plugged in at Antioch. God uses that to transform my life. But still, as I would go back home, it just got worse and worse and worse. And the church had dwindled to just a fraction of what it used to be. But the hardest part for me was eventually things came to a head and there was a pretty big conflict and split, pretty public. And it was so tough because I'm watching these incredible men and women of God who all of them had had a powerful effect on my life, but they weren't getting along with each other in a way that was, you know, pretty prominent. It's like, what do you do with that? How do, how do I take this? How do I reconcile this when this person that I look up to isn't able to get along with another person that I look up to and both of them have helped shape who I am in God? How do I make sense of all of those dynamics? It's tough. And, you know, once again, I'm grateful for this passage because at least it shows us that just like that can happen, it doesn't mean these are bad people. It just means they're human, just like Paul and Barnabas are human. So how do we navigate it? 
You know, when I preach passages like this, I have this commitment that I want to do everything I can to stick to what the passage is telling us. And if you're like tracking closely with me this morning, what you realize, what the passage is telling us is love God with your whole heart, do everything you can to walk in unity, be the people of God. Sometimes you're going to have conflict and you'll never see those people again. You know, it's like that's kind of a downer of a message for church on a Sunday morning. Don't worry, there's more hope that's coming towards the end. And, you know, I'm grappling with this. I'm like, man, yes, the passage introduces conflict, but does it give us a way out of it? Does it help us navigate it? And, you know, really, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you're not going to see Barnabas' name mentioned again. He does not factor into the story anymore. It's like, what, what do we do with something like that? And I was reflecting on this, and I thought, I actually think there is a really powerful principle for us in how we handle conflict. Are you ready for it? I think the principle is that we are not guaranteed the outcomes we want in conflict situations. What does that mean? That means we have a choice. Either because we're not guaranteed the outcome, we do everything we can to try to control the outcome in our own strength. If you've been around long enough, you know what happens if you do that. Bad. Just bad always. Or, and this is the point I really want to hit home this morning, and if you're a note taker, this is the point that you can write down. What do you do in conflict? You have to learn to trust God with the outcome. This is so hard to do. But you have to learn how to trust God with the outcome. You have to grapple with the fact that you are not guaranteed this is going to resolve the way that you want this to be resolved. You are not guaranteed that Barnabas is going to rejoin your ministry in two years. That is not something that God is promising going to happen to you. I would go so far as to suggest you are guaranteed you're going to have conflict, but you are not guaranteed what's going to happen in that conflict. So what do you do with that is you have to exercise faith in that moment and learn to trust God. I said it last week and I'm going to say it again this week. These are the, the words that are easy for a preacher to say and are hard for us to live. I have to learn to get to this point of trust in God, of recognizing there are things in this life that I cannot control the way I would like to. Therefore, I'm going to have to put it into the hands of Jesus and trust that he is stronger, greater, more powerful than I am. And he's good, and he's the God of unity who is working behind the scenes. And so even though you can't control it, you have to trust that he's able to take care of it. But there's another side to this equation. It's not necessarily um, explicit in our passage, but I, I I think we can state it this morning confidently. There's another side of this equation, and that is that while you are trusting God with the outcome, you also have to make a commitment that you will do what's right. Trust God with the outcome, and you do what is right. And if I could leave you with something this morning when it comes to conflict, it would be this one principle. And the reason why I think this is so important is if you're like me, I actually like to do the opposite in conflict, right? I obsess over the outcome, and I'm very focused on what I think you're doing wrong in this equation. I'm arguing with you in my mind. We've had so many arguments, and I've won all of them. Like, I, 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 I am very focused on you and your part in this story, but that's where my energy is. That's where my attention is. And I'm doing everything I can to kind of get my point across to you from on your side of the coin. And I've probably spent very little time examining my side of this conflict. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, but maybe. I'm focused on you and very rarely am I looking at me. I can't control you, but I can control me. I can't change the way that you act towards me 
but I can change the way that I act towards you. I can't control whether or not you're going to listen to me, but I, am, I can control whether or not I'm going to listen to you, right? Now, here's the challenge. Me doing my part does not guarantee you're going to do your part. That's the tension we have to live with. I can't control the outcome, but I can commit to do what's right. I think a lot of conflict happens because neither of us make that commitment to do what's right, so we never even have a chance in the first place. You know what I found a lot of times? Have you ever seen this before? When one person pauses long enough to legitimately listen and even say sorry before the other person has done anything, do you know what that does? That releases grace for the other person to turn around and do the same thing. Doesn't always work. It's not a silver bullet. But that's our chance to walk in in resolution when we're in the midst of conflict. But if neither person is willing to do it because both person is only focused on what the other person has done wrong to them and nobody's willing to take ownership or do their part, then there's no way to resolve that conflict because no one's willing to do the right thing. We have to trust God with outcomes and we have to commit to do what's right. Now, I, I, th- this passage doesn't really explain the you do what's right part. That's not really the point of Acts or um, you know, we're, we're looking at a story here. So I debated. I was like, okay, what, what do I do? And I, I thought what I, I was praying about it, I want to give you a few principles in Scripture because even though Acts doesn't explain this, what does it mean to do what's right in conflict? The rest of the New Testament, it's actually a really important theme in the New Testament, how we relate to one another. I think we overlook it a lot of times. Like we don't take seriously enough what the Bible says about conflict and about relationship with one another. And so you need to read the whole New Testament. There's a whole lot on here, but I'm going to highlight four things I see that I think are really important. And I'm going to do this rapid fire just for the sake of time. Um, first principle, I'm going to give you four principles of doing what's right. First one is this. I find it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, is that we have to approach other people with a mindset that looks to their interest ahead of our own. And why do we do this is because this is the mindset that Jesus has towards us. If every time I'm in conflict, my chief concern is that I get what I want. I am not doing conflict in the way of a Christian. Now, there is balance to this. There are times where you need to set up boundaries, and if the other person is unwilling to reciprocate in any way, that's not healthy, and in the long run, that needs to change. And so there's balance. But I think rather than focus too much on the balance, we probably all need a little bit more exhortation on looking at the other person and their needs, not ourselves, at least if you're like me. And just think how that would, that one, like one step would transform conflict if we would just approach the situation, not just looking at what we want, but also looking at what the other person might need. Second point, I get this from James chapter one, verse 19. It says, every one of you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Another tip of what, what does it mean to do what's right in a relationship and to do what's right in conflict is you got to learn how to listen. Most of us reverse this. We're quick to react emotionally to somebody, and then we're quick to talk about why they've hurt us, and we're very slow to actually listen to what they have to say. Here's how I know I'm doing okay in a conflict, is if I have listened enough to the other person where I can represent what they're trying to tell me in a way that they agree with. Not what I think they should think, but if I can restate back to you what you're trying to tell me in a way that makes you feel heard, then I know I'm on the right track. But if all I can do is interpret you through my own lens then we're probably not there yet. We have to learn how to listen to each other. Third principle, I get this from Matthew 18, verse 15 through 16. We have to learn how to go directly to the other person and share our concern with them. The Bible does not say, you know, when somebody has wronged you, go talk to as many people as possible. 
to get input or sneakily work it into a prayer request about how that other person has hurt you in a relationship. And then only after things have gotten to it, a very terrible moment, then maybe go talk to them. No, it's like, go talk to the person straight up. I had somebody do this with me a few years ago. I'm so grateful. Um, it's a, a, a person I know from the church. I don't know him super well, but we'd always um, work out of the same coffee shop. And one day he asked to go for a walk and just chat with me. And as we're walking, he just asked me, he said, hey man, I, I feel like whenever I, I talk with you, it seems like you don't want to talk to me or almost that you're mad with me. Have I done something? And, you know, I'm sitting there and, and it's like, I, I had never thought that. There, there was nothing negative in me towards him. And so I was able to share that with him, but I, I just felt so grateful. I don't know. I don't know if that was his own sensitivity or if I was putting off some kind of vibe of like, stay away. I, I don't know. I, I honestly could have been. But regardless of kind of what caused it, his maturity in coming to me allowed for that to not spiral beyond just one conversation. But imagine if he had like built up in his mind that I'm this angry pastor, you know, and then he starts telling all of his friends. And, you know, you see how those kind of things can spiral so quickly because we're not willing to go straight to the person and have a chat. And if you keep reading the pastor or the, uh, the chapter, what it's saying is even if you have that conversation, it doesn't go well, that doesn't let you off the hook to go gossip with your friends. Now bring along somebody else to help mediate the conversation. Good wisdom for how to handle conflict. My last tip is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. This is the Lord's Prayer, and it's that at the end of the day, we have to commit to forgive. We have to make a commitment to forgive. Forgiveness is central to our faith. It's the forgiveness we've received from Christ, but it's also the forgiveness that we extend to one another. The reality of conflict is that people will hurt you and they'll even sin against you. And ultimately, the words of Jesus could not be more clear in that moment, we have to extend to them the same forgiveness that has been given to us. The Lord's Prayer uses um, this word, forgive us our debts. Now, some of you have Bibles where it says trespasses or sins, but the, the literal Greek word is debt. It's something that is owed to you. And the reason we translate it differently is because it's not just financial. But think about that. If somebody's hurt you, there's this sense that they owe you something, and until they pay you back, you can't have a restored relationship. But forgiveness is canceling the debt because your debt has also been canceled. Now, once again, I have to balance. It doesn't mean that there's no consequence. It doesn't mean we don't establish boundaries. But it does mean that we make a commitment in our hearts that we will forgive someone. And if you've been hurt badly by somebody, you know that can be a lifelong process of forgiveness. But it's not an option for us. Even if we have to have some kind of boundary in the relationship, we still have to get to the other side, at least in our own heart. I could keep going. Lots of wisdom in Scripture. But we have to trust God with the outcome, and then we have to commit to do what's right. Now, let me end with this. Our passage uh, this morning does not resolve itself. There, there is never a moment where it tells us that everything worked out in the end. But here's the cool thing about trusting God and releasing outcomes to Him. We serve a miracle-working God who longs to restore us back into unity with one another. And there's a lot of hints in the rest of Scripture of what happens at the end of our story you start seeing John Mark's name pop up a lot more frequently. You see, you see Barnabas' name pop up again. You start hearing their names be associated with Paul. It seems like somewhere along the way, they are restored back together. And then I love this. When you get to the end of 2 Timothy, which is Paul's very last letter, these are the last recorded words of Paul. I want you to read what he says. 2 Timothy um, verse, chapter 4, verse 11. I think we have it on the screen. Who does he want by his side? In his last moment, he says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. 
Isn't that amazing? The guy that he couldn't even trust is now the guy that he's almost on his deathbed. He's saying, bring him to be with me because he's somebody that I can trust. God worked this incredible restoration, and Scripture doesn't tell us how it happened. We don't know how long they were in conflict, but by the end of their lives, what we start to see is a depth of relationship that wasn't there at the beginning, because somehow, some way, as each one of them resolved to not quit, to not bail on relationship, to keep pressing in, to keep doing what's right, in the end, God works a restoration in the relationship. You've come across Mark before because he's also one of the authors of one of the four Gospels. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. I'm so glad Barnabas took the chance on him. You know, this guy, he made mistakes. There's conflict, legit conflict. I still don't know who was right, Paul or Barnabas. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that we serve a God who restores things in the end and brings hope and healing. And we have to let go of outcomes because we can't control them. But what we can do is trust God because he works restoration. Amen? Let's stand. The worship team can join us. You know, I saw this in my own life. I told you about the conflict I had in the church, but I thought about it, you know, that was decades ago now. And it was so cool for me to see something very similar to this, of people who had a bitter conflict, and there were consequences to it. But out of this conflict, there's a massive prayer ministry that was started, at least one, if not more, missions agencies that are started, all of them still going, multiple churches that were planted. I, these people ended up, most of them ended up reconciling in the end. And to this day, um, the ones that are still with us remain spiritual fathers and mothers in my own life. And even though it was painful, time brings perspective that our hope is not in people. It's not in people's ability to work things out together. Our hope is in God who's able to bring a restoration. And then that sets us free to do what's right with one another. Amen. We're going to... Um, Conclude with the time of ministry, and I'd love for our prayer teams, you can kind of quickly make your way down to the front. And there's a couple ways I want us to respond this morning. And first of all, the reason we do ministry time is we don't just show up at church uh, to hear a message, but we show up at church because God's here. And you know, this morning I'm talking about trusting God. I don't say that rotely. Like, I legitimately believe that God brings breakthrough. And every situation's different. I remember one time I was one of these people up here. There was a, a man who came up, had been suffering from a decades-long drug addiction. I prayed over him, and instantly God healed him. He's still walking in freedom decades later. Now, if you've worked in recovery ministry, that's not a normal testimony. I also know stories of people where, as a church, we've walked with them, just slugged it out for decades, and they're walking in freedom. Both of them found freedom in God, but he did it different ways. My friend who got instantly set free, there were other areas of his life that were a lifelong struggle. So, you know, we have to kind of hold those in tension, but we pray for each other because we believe God is present in this place, and what you brought in, God wants to bring a breakthrough for you. So if you are in conflict with somebody right now, now don't do it awkwardly if they're sitting next to you. Like, you can come together, but you know. But if there's a family member and you're estranged, come down here or get the person next to you. Let's believe for breakthrough. Really, I've heard testimonies in the last two weeks of decades, like literally 10, 20 year long arguments. God brought restoration, even salvations into families because people didn't give up believing for it. So I'm not just saying trust God rotely, like legitimately trust God. And part of trusting God is us praying together, okay? So if that's you, please come down to the front and let's, let us pray over you. Also, if you're thinking like, I, I don't know God, I don't know Jesus. We took communion earlier. You're one of the ones who, it wasn't your time to take it. We Please don't leave today without giving us an opportunity to talk to you about what it means to walk with Jesus. And then lastly, you know, I know there's so many needs that people brought in this morning that maybe nothing to do with what I said, 
go back to that whole trust God thing. Like, we want to pray for you. Is there sickness, financial need? Um, the church is a place of people to really care for one another, pray for each other. So whether it's the person next to you or somebody down here, like, let's, let's pray for each other this morning before we walk out. Does that sound good? All right, so I'm going to pray. But as I'm praying, just start walking. If you want prayer, don't be shy. God's worth it. So Lord, we thank you, God. Thank you that you are a God who works together all things that even in our conflict, even in our challenges, Lord, even in the, the, the mountains that are in front of us where we don't have answers, Lord, you have healing, you have power. And Lord, I ask for grace this morning that we would leave today with faith. Lord, not naivety about pain, not denial, but faith. Faith that you can work all things, Lord. I ask there to be grace over us as your people. Lord God, that, that we would renew something in our own hearts, this commitment to walk with you and to do things in your way. And Lord, I, do, I just bless every person in this room, each one of us, God, all the relational things that I know are going on. Lord, we just trust you. Lord, will you unite us? Will you reconcile us? Will you restore us? In Jesus' name.